Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Summetry. This is um, episode 29, and it's a pleasure to bring back into the virtual studio Carrie Brown to discuss issues of China and the West, and in particular, uh, China and the West dialogue. Carrie is uh, one of a number of China and international relations experts. Uh, joined the V20 principles at Boston University uh, in uh, March of this year. The V20 principles include uh, Colin Bradford from Brookings Institution uh, and Eve Tiberjan, a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, and myself at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. This spring, with the help of Professor Kevin Gallagher from Boston University, we were about to launch uh, a preliminary workshop uh, at, uh, at BU uh, to examine all the issues around the China and the West. The pandemic, of course, meant that an in-person meeting was not possible, and we held a virtual meeting which included um, uh, experts and former officials from Latin America, the United States, Canada, the UK, and Europe. The results of the meeting, including uh, the identification of issues and statements arising from the China and the West dialogue, can be found at the Global Development Policy Center, GDP, at Boston University, the um, URL is in the written introduction. Many of the experts that joined us at the BU in this virtual meeting also prepared background notes. All these notes can be found at the CWD site at the Global Summetry Project website, and the URL is again at the written introduction. The Vision 20 principles also plan to gather experts at the fourth annual Global Solutions Summit in Berlin. Obviously, that turned out to be a virtual gathering as well. Fortunately, the, um, the organizers provided us with a so-called global table uh, themed uh, in, within the future of multilateralism and global governance. This um, video includes... Colin Bradford, who provides the keynote, and then the panel uh, involves uh, presentations by Chen Dongxiao, the president of SIIS in Shanghai, Susan Thornton, senior fellow and research scholar at the Yale Law School, uh, Paul Tsai Center, and Carrie Brown, of course, uh, at the Lao China Institute, at King's College London. You can find that, uh, those videos at How Is It Possible to Avoid the Emergence of Another Bipolar Competitive Era Within the Theme of the Future of Multilateralism. Carrie, of course, was one of the noted panelists, and I was keen to have Carrie return to the virtual studio, notwithstanding that he had undertaken episode 28 of Shaking the Global Order um, uh, Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump, 
because I wanted to further uh, examine his um, uh, background note uh, from the BU meeting and then his uh, video panel appearance at the Global Solutions Summit. I wanted to dig further into his view that the global governance system was moving, is moving to a dual architecture or what he also calls a dual track world with two different operating systems. What are the implications of this for US-China relations, as Kerry understands it, and indeed, what are the implications for global governance relations? Kerry has served in both uh, the public and the academic sectors. Indeed, from 1998 to 2005, he worked at the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office as first secretary at the British Embassy in Beijing, and then as the head of the Indonesia, Philippine, and East Timor section. Um, Kerry has written extensively on Chinese politics and its foreign policy. Probably his most well-known study is uh, China's Dream, the Culture of Chinese Communism and the Secret Sources of Its Power. So, come join with me and Kerry as we explore the implications of his uh, writings for the Vision 20 in episode 29 uh, of Shaking the Global Order, Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you back, uh, Carrie, to uh, the uh, to Global Summitry, and in particular, this particular podcast, which is uh, Shaking the Global Order, uh, Foreign Policy in the Age of Trump. So are you there? I am indeed. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me. Okay, so uh, uh, episode twenty-nine, the one we're doing today, is really to um, inquire further uh, into uh, a memo you prepared and also a video with some of your colleagues. So, reminding the audience, the memo uh, comes out of a, a preliminary workshop on China and the West dialogue, organized by the v, uh, Vision Twenty Group. Um, at the Global Development Policy Center, and thanks to the support of uh, its head, uh, Kevin Gallagher, and uh, your memo can be found at that site, uh, and as well, uh, your participation in uh, the Global Solutions Summit, uh, the fourth annual one, which, like the BU meeting, was all virtual, and in that case, it was uh, your your participation was in the uh, t um, t global table called Toward a 21st Century Global Order, and in particular, the future of multilateralism and uh, global governance. Those uh, URLs can, will be found at the beginning of this um, uh, this particular um, podcast, uh, the written segment. So let me get to your. Um, memo uh, that you prepared following the Boston University uh, uh, meeting. In that memo, uh, which and and that um, meeting was really to explore uh, the possibilities for global order in the context of a rising China-U.S. competition and rivalry. And you wrote, China acts in an orderly way sometimes 
but its political values and the way in which they've been expressed under Xi Jinping show that China does so for self-interest and for preservation of stability and order that work for it with a different notion of responsibility. Maybe you can kind of unpack it a little bit as, and for the audience as to what you meant by that in the context of a U.S.-China rivalry. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, part of it is framed by China's historic behavior, the fact that it's often viewed itself as a victim and feeling that it's sort of weaker than the world around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the kind of history of humiliation it feels it suffered um, in the kind of modern period. And I think, you know, that still leaves a big, big kind of uh, you know impact on China's thinking today, that it's sort of often, you know, trying to defend and protect itself and it privileges sovereignty you know because it was so hard won and it sort of is definitely you know not in the market of of, you know sort of kind of um, conceding to the US or Europe or others any sort of position where it looks like it is you know kind of their subsidiary or or, or their inferior Mm -hmm. so I think China is definitely in the kind of market for this kind of validation and status Um, and I think a lot of its actions you can either see, you know, people sort of interpret it as wanting some big global kind of uh, uh, role that, that is almost like an alternative to the U.S. and a competitor to the U.S. But it's different to be, you know, kind of to be trying to replace one order by another is very different to actually just trying to carve a space out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think China's behavior is often interpreted better as carving a space out for itself it's not really that China is coming along and saying we have a new template for the whole global order and it's going to boot out everything that, you know, the U.S. and others have done. I think it's much more bespoke. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of the sort of complaints about China today are that, you know, it, his, it's got this ambition, aspiration, that it wants to sort of, you know, be the new world. But I think it just wants the new world to kind of accommodate it. And that's a different set of challenges. It's a challenge, but it's a different set of challenges. So I take it you don't really see China and the the Chinese leadership at the moment as seeking, per se, superpower status that rivals uh, necessarily the United States, assuming that we can view the United States as having that that particular uh, position any longer. Yeah, I think that China is averse to having responsibilities that don't serve it. So Mm -hmm. it feels that getting involved just for global peace with issues that don't give it some kind of benefit is problematic. You know, it doesn't want that. It doesn't want to get sucked into the politics of the Middle East unless it's there to defend its own, you know, kind of uh, investment and energy interests. It doesn't want to be seen as the global police person because it thinks that that's just a perpetual headache. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want to, you know, kind of be seen as some sort of soft touch for people, you know, kind of other countries to basically make it stand by them. It's, it's really averse that it doesn't like treaty based, you know, alliances. It doesn't really like to get involved in multilateralism that's got all this kind of, you know, small print where suddenly China finds sort of, you know, kind of involved in things that it doesn't want to be involved in. It guides everything by a pretty clear idea of what its self-interest is. And that self-interest is basically to get rich, to be strong, respected, and to you know, be a great, powerful country. It's simple as that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, does does the uh, kind of imagery and analysis uh, brought uh, by uh, Ian Johnston from Harvard on this multiple orders and complex orders in which um, China kind of involves itself in some of the elements, but not in other of the elements. Does that capture in part what you're talking about? Yeah, I think Ian Johnson's, uh, you know, research showing that the rules that based order is, is actually a relatively new term. And I think he sort of accredits it to, to sort of Kevin Rudd, you know, about 10 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and we we often hear the idea of the rules based system. But I mean, that wasn't the way it was described until quite recently. So, I mean, it's okay to accuse China of a bunch of crimes after the fact. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you sort of, you know, as I understand it, you know, in, in, in most law, uh, you, you know, you, you have to kind of, you can't accuse someone of something until you create, you know, a, a kind of law about it saying it's illegal. And, you know, the sort of rules-based system, China's violation of that, well, as it wasn't really spoken about, even though it may have existed, it didn't really get spoken about until quite recently. I think Ian Johnson's point is right. You know, that's that's sort of, you know, can, there's something interesting about then saying that, China is, uh, you know, kind of contesting that when China's rise started way before, you know, people started talking about the rules based system. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a kind of um, big debate to be had about what it is that China is meant to be opposing, because it seems that the most powerful proponents of this system didn't start really, really proposing that system until quite recently. Mm-hmm. Um, can one point to various aspects of this now order? Um, for instance, uh, uh, Ian has talked about the fact that China seems more than willing to uh, join in uh, with respect to some of the global institutions like the UN and so forth. Whereas when uh, it's uh, the rules-based order seems to push a kind of democracy uh, front, then China, in effect, backs away? I think it's really important to remember the difference between the spirit and the letter. Mm-hmm. And I guess the problem is that the dominant powers in recent history, you know, certainly after the Second World War, uh, shared so much that they could agree a lot of things without kind of worrying too much about the spirit of the letter because, you know, it was all there in the cultures and the languages and the way that they, you know, their political systems aligned. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, kind of worrying that someone would come along who would absolutely agree with the letter of the law but not the spirit is just a very subversive sort of thing. And, and in a sense, that's what China does. You know, with WTO and other things, mostly it will follow the letter of the law. You know, it will kind of follow the broad outlines mm-hmm. of what's expected. But there's a sort of sense that it doesn't really kind of go along with the ethos or the underlying spirit of what's been agreed. And, you know, it's sort of terribly rapacious the way that it agrees things. It can be ruthless in prosecuting its interests. Um, you know, which is against the spirit, you know, the kind of whole uh, way in which things should be done. And I think it's hard to sort of, you know, you get legalistic about that. In a weird way, though, China is immune to that sort of legalistic approach. You're trying to really say that China should play fairly. Mm-hmm. And fairly is a fairly sort of loaded term. Um, you know, it's a difficult term 
when you don't share so much ethically, culturally, socially, and politically, when you talk about fair play, you can get sucked into a lot of treacherous territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's worth pursuing this a little bit because the, the United States, particularly under the Trump administration, has really, um, you know, kind of uh, focused on uh, aspects of the WTO and, and the rule structure. And, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, that many of the charges related to the unfairness you just raised with respect to China include intellectual property and, um, you know, the the uh, theft, so-called theft of intellect, not so-called, the theft of intellectual property in some cases and, and the, tra- you know, uh, majority uh, or the, the need for joint ownership. And, and uh, you know, that seemed to be assumed by many in the WTO would occur, and yet it hasn't occurred. On the other hand, you know, China has begun to move on those issues, changing the rules. So does that suggest that China is more willing, you know, when faced with that kind of, uh, 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 kind of, uh, identification will begin to alter its behavior to meet the legalistic side? Well, I mean, it's a great question because, uh, you know, 15 years ago, Robert Zolik, you know, was talking yeah. about wanting China to be a stakeholder. Uh, the problem is when the stakeholder becomes the majority shareholder. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, you can kind of, you know, if it's sort of like you've still got the 50, you know, 51% majority, it's okay. But when the day comes when they've got the 51%, everything changes. Mm-hmm. And I suppose what we've seen is a China coming along and saying, actually, you know, we've gone along with this system because we weren't important before. Now, actually, our inputs are huge. We are part of the, you know, mm-hmm. kind of uh, fifth of global GDP and everything. And, well, how do how, you know, we need a representative say in that. We don't really have enough in the IMF. We don't really feel that we're represented in a lot of other bodies. Mm-hmm. So China's got created a bunch of its own you know like belt road initiative and um the BRICS bank and the asia infrastructure investment bank and i guess that's sort of representative of the fact that it wants a bigger role because it's bigger i mean you know it's a truism basically but it wants a bigger role because it's bigger and so it's still a stakeholder but it's the majority stakeholder a lot of the time mm-hmm. so i mean the, you know you can't uh, really in that situation be surprised therefore that it's trying to get um a harder and better deal for itself I suppose what you've got to do, really, and, and in a sense, America is doing this with the renegotiations uh, or the negotiations, is trying to be equally um, clear-sighted back about what it wants from China. So, I mean, it's not wholly that the Trump administration is doing the wrong thing. I mean, it it's kind of makes sense that it's doing what it's doing. The kind of problem is, though, that it's doing it in a position now where it's weaker and weaker. Uh, and I mean, maybe this should have been something when Solik was talking about, Zelik was talking about stakeholder, you know, then maybe mm-hmm. they should have been deals back then rather than now, because it would have been probably a much easier time to do them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, of course, Zolik was talking uh, 2005. So yeah. it is, a, as you say, it's a ways back. Uh, let me ask you now here, this this comes out of your discussion with your colleague, Susan Thornton, who's a former official of the State Department, and with uh, Chen Dongxiao, uh, who is the president of the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies, uh, this video that was done for the Global Table, the Global Solutions Summit. You suggested that the world was moving to a dual-track world, 
one from which you suggested was a move from what you described quite in, interestingly as moving from a bungalow to a two-story building. And I wondered, what did you mean by that? I mean, it's a crude way of saying that you know, the unipolar world or the sort of the world where there's one superpower is clearly changing, you know, and that, that's the world of the bungalow, right? You know, you, you've got all one level and, you know, you're dealing with a, a sort of situation where, uh, you know, the kind of military and, and a lot of the economic power belongs to one one place. So it's it's sort of one level. Now, I mean, China in the last 10 years has obviously created economically, at least a completely different alternative, you know, and it's it's as I say, a fifth of GDP now and probably in the next decade, I mean, even with all the uncertainty we're seeing now, mm -hmm. it's like the world's biggest economy. So, I mean, you know, what what, what do you do when, when you've got, you know, a, a sort of situation where not, not only economically, but, uh, you know, politically, culturally, philosophically, China is so different to the US, you know, and it, it, it sort of uh, operates in a different way. You can't really cram it into the spare room. It's too big. You can't really make it co-owner because, you know, America won't let it sign part of the lease. So what do you do? You you, you kind of build a new <laughs> new floor, right? I mean, you know, you, you, you build a sort of like a two-story building. And I think um, that sort of captures this idea of a sort of dual-track world. Um, it also captures the problems of that dual-track world because, you know, to get from one floor to the other, you're going to need stairs, and most accidents happen on the stairs. So you've got to, you know, sort of really be careful about how you, you know, kind of navigate between these two sort of places. But, I mean, I think it's it's not impossible to imagine that kind of structures of the world. It's impossible to imagine a one sort of track world, you know, one-story world that we live in now continuing because I think you can already see it fragmenting so so much. Um and it's impossible to imagine, you know, it's it's very, very um, undesirable to imagine a world where, you know, the, the, the sort of whole thing ends in a ruin, you know, where everyone just doesn't compromise and everything gets torn apart. Mm -hmm. So if, I think this, this is just a sort of simple way of trying to capture a very complex issue of what do you do about a an entity like China – economically important politically different looks like it's going to stay that way you know it's not giving any indication it's going to change mm -hmm. and you know you are having to create a structure that recognizes that well mm -hmm. the only structure that sort of works to me is one where you do have some sort of duality or, or even tr you know trilateralism but you know certainly duality uh, and i think that's what we've got urgently to try and think about what does that dual track world look like yeah, and in fact, in in your discussion uh, and answering the questions that were posed to the panel um, uh, at the uh, Global Solutions Summit uh, video, you said um, it would likely be a dual-track system and, in fact, two power blocks along with two different operating uh, codes. But I guess I'm I'm raising the question here. When you say two power blocks, are you really are you contemplating this notion of a resurgence of a bipolar world? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I if if the, if you mean um, do I think it's going to be like the, the the time of the Cold War of the USSR and China? Right. Um, I think that was a bipolar world because mm -hmm. you had a sort of disconnection between their economies. Uh, you had, um, you know, ideological massive difference, you know, both of them believing that their vision of the world was the right one. I, I mean, the USSR obviously had alliances behind the Iron Curtain. You know, there was a USSR world beyond the USSR. Um, 
you know, so kind of was pretty starkly bipolar. Whereas I think um, we see a very complex and different situation now. Mm -hmm. China um, is integrated into many parts of the global economy, supply chains, and, you know, I mean, COVID-19 may change that, but I don't think it can significantly kind of change it very, very quickly. Um, you've got um, issues, you know, where China's part of capital flows. Uh, you know, it's partially integrated and partially sort of not integrated. Um, it's not an ideological you know, kind of opponent in the way that the USSR was. Um, you know, it's ideologically not similar, but I don't think it's a proselytizer. It doesn't want to come and, you know, make us like it because it's so exclusive in the way it views itself, you know, so it doesn't think we can become like it and doesn't want us to become politically like it. You know, it's mm -hmm. happy with that difference. So that's a sort of much more amorphous situation, a much more sort of, you know, difficult to nail situation. So I think, you know, the, the kind of why I don't say bipolar, I say dual is mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the two stories of a house have got to relate to each other, right? I mean, you can't have, you know, like uh, completely no connection between them because how the hell are you going to get from store one to store two, you know, story one to story two? Yeah. Um, you've got somewhere to do that. So, uh, you know, we have to have a dual track world where there's, you know, a lot of connectivity and a recognition of this shared sort of space, um, you know, economically, environmentally, uh, you know, kind of all those things but also a recognition that there is a profound difference and, you know, some way of kind of, you know, kind of accommodating that. So operating system seems to me, you know, kind of to capture that because, you know, you have, you have the same world, but you have two very, very different sorts of, you know, kind of uh, operating systems that are active in it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and it's sort of <clears throat> for some things you can use one for some another. Um, and so, I mean, you know, it's a bit like the sort of, you know, Chrome and, in, you know, Chrome and Explorer, you know, so you can use Google Chrome for one thing and Internet Explorer for other. Everyone's computer has these two. And, you know, you kind of just may manage to sort of carve carve your Internet space up that way. So I think that's China-U.S. relations will be almost like, you know, uh, Google Chrome and Internet Explorer. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but uh, let me do one last thought on this. I, You know, if I think about, you know, what represents potentially a bridge away up the stairs to the second floor in your kind of uh, uh, view. Um, it seems to me that uh, trade and investment is more than anything the bridge because uh, the, China has benefited dramatically from an open commercial world, which was clearly part of the effort to, um, you know, build uh, the global order through for the last 70 years. So why do you see that as being uh, hampered when, in fact, I would think, uh, viewing it from Beijing's point of view, uh, uh, an open uh, trading system is probably the most crucial element uh, to um, China gaining uh, economic prosperity which and becoming rich, which is clearly something they want to do. Well, I mean, so absolutely for sure, uh, China has enjoyed benefits from uh, that open system, mm -hmm. which then called, you know, the rules based system. Um, and so, you know, kind of it's, it's that's why I don't think it's really wanting to threaten and undermine the stability and predictability that that delivers mm -hmm. um, in the wider world, because it also delivers stability to, you know, and kind of predictability to China. 
when China domestically still has very, very significant challenges. Um, but I mean, this this is not this sort of um, way of operating, you know, with predictability and kind of, uh, you, you know, sort of, I suppose you'd say kind of uh, reg, reg, regulations and all the rest of it. I mean, firstly, I think China wants to participate in how those rules and regulations are constructed more and more mm-hmm. um, as the system develops. Um, secondly, you know, the battle really now is to what extent those, you know, kind of regulations and norms are going to really impact on the domestic situation of countries. You know, for China, it is almost like the predictability begins on its borders, but domestically, it, it sort of doesn't want to kind of really accommodate this. And I think the assumption in the past was, you know, that there had to be some kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. If you use externally, they would change your behavior internally. And China seems to be disproving that as as of today. I mean, it seems to be able to kind of balance, you know, uh, this this sort of system. So I think, you know, what we see is a China that is quite happy with a lot of the, say, broadly U.S., you know, kind of led more predictable, you know, kind of more uh, sort of rules, I say rules-based, you know, more regulated um, kind of way of doing investment, doing trade. I mean, it, it buys into that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it also has significant issues about how much that should impact on its own political system. And that's where there's sort of like problems. You know, it doesn't want that to impact on its own political system. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a fact that needs to be recognised. I'm, it's probably a fact that we can't do much about. It's China's decision. But we certainly shouldn't make some big linkage between the rules-based system as we see it and impose on certain decisions um, on China, which it should make, which actually I don't think is, is, is you know, it can make and we, can, we, we, we can't really do that sort of dictation now. I mean, it's just not our job, right? I think there's got to be an exception to that. Okay. Uh, one further, kind of extending it just into the region, does this dual-track world that you're describing, the two operating systems, uh, does it have an impact then on uh, U.S. or Western allies and alliances in the Asia-Pacific region, such as Japan and South Korea, and let me leave aside for the moment Taiwan, but uh, at least Japan and Korea, I suppose the ASEAN as well, the 10 countries? For sure. I mean, it's massive, massive impact in all sorts of different areas. I mean, firstly, all of the uh, you know countries in the region have to balance security relations with America uh, um, and, you know, kind of economic relations with China. Mm-hmm. And that from Australia to South Korea to, Korea to Japan, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, they all have the same generic issue though, to different sort of degrees. I think the second thing is that, you know, the... Um, the, the kind of alliance system that the United States has is still important, but you know a lot of the um, uh, kind of optics of the Trump presidency is that it doesn't really privilege these as much as it used to. It, it sort of looks upon them as being a burden, and you know that's not China's um, creation. That that perception is America's creation. So you, you know, I mean, I, I guess were Trump to be re-elected in November, um, you know, if this continues, it's going to be weakening for America because it's a perception issue that America is not sort of as, uh, you know, kind of careful of its alliances as it used to be. And if that's the case, 
well, then you get a lot of, you know, kind of, uh, of these countries. We're kind of on our own now, you know. We've got to kind of just look to our own. And, yeah, if we have to deal with China a bit more deeply in a different way, even if we have to compromise, we're going to have to do it to look after ourselves. Mm. And I think that, you know, that is not uh, – for sure, China is going to be opportunistic about that. But it's not something that China's created. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these about China's, you know, contemporary position, we have to be very, very careful to sort of have a line between – the things that China's created for itself, the opportunities that <clears throat> proactive created, and the things that we have created that have given it the space to move into. And they're not the same. I mean, they're really not the same. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Let me, I mean, the final kind of uh, question here is really, okay, so what about uh, uh, Taiwan? Because that's clearly a flashpoint. And what about uh, the South China Sea? I mean, how does, uh, in a dual-track world or dual-operating system world, two two different uh, elements, uh, wh- where does China go with that? So it's always a sort of like, um, almost like the kind of end of an evening after a nice conversation, you know, and you agree, <laughs> and then someone says, what about Taiwan? And think, oh, my God, it's time to get the coat and go. <laughs> um, so firstly, Taiwan has dealt with the COVID-19 issue, you know, really, really well. Yes. And in a sense, it's um, ironically, the uh, thing that China most wants, obviously, is to take back Taiwan, you know, and have reunification. And ironically, the stronger it gets in some areas, you know, sort of geopolitically, the more distant this issue of Taiwan gets. The stakes kind of get higher and higher. You know, it, it, it as a sort of, you know, less important, more kind of uh, marginal country, it could kind of be a bit adventurous, you know. But, you know, the stakes now are so high that going uh, for Taiwan in a way that is disruptive, you know, is just going to cause, you know, calamity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this whole COVID-19 um, uh, crisis has illustrated that really well because, you know, it's kind of, first of all, uh, given Taiwan a very high profile, you know, the way that they've dealt with the crisis has been uh, recognized and acknowledged as, as doing, you know, really being exceptional. Um, it has created a sense of, sense of confidence and pride in Taiwan. Uh, added to that is the dismay at seeing the way that the one country, two systems, you know, has, has sort of uh, uh, um, rolled out in Hong Kong. Uh, this system, you know, one country, two systems was meant to be eventually the one that was going to resolve the Taiwan issue. But I think most people would now say that Taiwanese would look at this and think, no way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the sense in Taiwan of being different, of that being viable, of being Taiwanese and not Chinese, has deepened markedly. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen's re-election in January this year, you know, as president, mm-hmm. um, with huge, you know, kind of mandate, 58%, you know, big increase in what she won before. Um and I think this is sort of, and she's obviously taken a very, very, you know, kind of autonomous view that Taiwan is Taiwanese and, you know, doesn't want to have kind of a big fight with China and can't have a big fight with China. But, you know, that has to be recognized. So I think in some ways the issue of Taiwan is going to be perpetually intractable. You know, it's it's not really soluble. And I think um, it's not, uh, it's never going to go away but it's also never going to be something that China can say, right, you know, we're going to deal with this now. It's on our game plan. Right. Uh, of course, we'd always get very aggressive and just go for it. But as I say, the consequences of that would be absolutely calamitous for it. Mm-hmm. And and the South China Sea, same? 
I think that's different. I mean, I mm-hmm. think the South China is just where China will continue to apply psychological pressure, look for opportunities, mm-hmm. change, you know, try and change facts on the ground. And, and that is a serious issue of, you know, kind of clashing with the American, you know, sort of uh, uh, Navy. And, and, you know, it's going to be a place, I think, a perpetual um, sort of potential instabi- instability. Um, and it's really a question about where lines are drawn. I mean, the thing that the china line you know the the line that china wants is way 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 too far for most people <laughs> but i think you know the the, the possibility you know that the, the proposition though that china wants strategic space around its coast is not you know it's not a puzzling one you know i, I think anyone wants that sort of security mm-hmm. so i think uh, this also is not going to issue that's going to not it's not an issue that's going to go away but it's different to the, the issue of taiwan Okay. Well, Carrie, I want to thank you for taking some time out and being willing to kind of follow up on uh, both your memo, uh, which we'll be posting soon at the Global uh, Symmetry Project website, and also uh, your appearance uh, at uh, the Global Table. So mm. it, it's a real pleasure to have you uh, kind of further elaborate on some of your thoughts on this. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.